0: It has been nine years. Nine years ago this week, uh, Sarah and I were married. It's been a great nine years, filled with much joy and laughter, even in the challenging times. And I'm anticipating doing something special to celebrate the occasion. Maybe uh, take her to McDonald's or something. (laughs) What? I mean, kids, wouldn't you want to go to McDonald's? Yeah. Yeah. No? What? Women, wouldn't you want to go to McDonald's? No? No? You don't think that would be a good idea? How can great value be a bad idea? Maybe you just haven't seen the coupons that they have on the McDonald's app. I was looking on there the other day, and they have one where if I buy a Big Mac, I get another one free. Isn't that enough? I mean, exactly how much money do I have to spend? Now that line of thinking is a good way to end up making my bed on the couch. Um, Rather than being concerned about how I can best express my love to Sarah, that kind of mindset would reveal me to be more concerned with how I can best save my money. I'm asking the wrong kind of questions because I'm embracing the wrong kind of concerns. Now, of course, my love for Sarah would curtail any crazy spending that would put us in financial danger. But my love for her would also lead me to take her somewhere much nicer than McDonald's, like Wendy's. <laughs> no, no, I could, I kid. No. <laughs> what I want you to consider this morning is the possibility that your values and concerns might be leading you to ask the wrong kinds of questions. That maybe you need to fundamentally change the way that you're looking at things to get in sync with God's and His kingdom. So, we look at the first verses from this passage in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. And here we find Jesus with his disciples, and there's some parents bringing their little chees- children to Jesus for him to bless them. Now, this is a common practice at that time. Um, some commentators say that on the Day of Atonement it was common for parents to bring their children to rabbis to receive a blessing of this sort. Um, But the disciples, when they saw these parents doing this, started rebuking them, telling them to basically beat it, go away. Seems as though they felt that this request that Jesus would bless these children was too mundane, considering how important Jesus was. Certainly, he had something more important than to welcome these children into his presence. And again, this reminds us of the status of children at this time. Now, even in our own society, in terms of the important people in the world, children don't rank very high. But if you go back then, the rank of children in society was especially low. Now, when Jesus heard them saying this, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, it says that he actually got indignant. He got very upset about his disciples basically chewing out these parents. And in verse 14, he responds to them and says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So as Jesus has done so often, yet again we find him confounding expectations. Someone who had such a following as his might be expected to think himself too important to welcome children, and yet, he says not only that these children should come before him, but that in fact, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And what he's getting at isn't, he's not trying to make a point about children as such, but about the characteristics of that children typically possess. They're dependent, and they're also lowly. And we've already kind of talked about this a bit in the previous chapter, Matthew 18.3. He told his disciples, and apparently they kind of forgot. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus welcomes them. He places his hands on the children, blesses them. Because the kingdom belongs to those who become like little children, depending on God. Not thinking of themselves as being so self-important. So with this statement hanging in the background about the kingdom belonging to little children like these, we have a new character burst onto the scene. We look at verses 16 through 22. And we have a man come before Jesus. And in verse 19, it says that it's a young man. And in Luke 18, we're told that this man was a ruler. So you have a rich, young ruler who comes before Jesus with a question. He asks in verse 16, Teacher... What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, that's not a bad question to ask, because as you'll recall, Jesus often talks about this. Again, in the previous chapter, he's been talking about seeking eternal life. He says in Matthew eighteen eight, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. So, as Jesus often does when someone comes and asks Him a question, He responds with a question. Verse 17. He first says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, when we've tried to understand about who Jesus is, his nature and being the one who is the Messiah, but also about how he is the one who is also fully God, the Son of God come in the flesh, many of those who would dispute that reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man will come to this verse to kind of Pick a fight because it seems on the surface that maybe Jesus is denying something of who he is, and this becomes all the more acute when you go to the other Gospels. When you look at Mark ten eighteen and Luke ten nineteen, the cha- the question is recorded there slightly different. So in Matthew nineteen seventeen, he ha- the man asks, "Why do you ask?" Uh, Jesus says, "Why do you ask me about what is good?" And then in Mark 10.18, he says, why do you call me good? And Luke 10.19, he says, why do you call me good? And then he says, no one is good except God alone, which matches up with what he says in Matthew 19, which is there's only one who is good. Now the point is all the same, regardless of how the question is phrased by Jesus, because this man is asking Jesus about what is good because he assumes that Jesus is a good teacher. And so, in his response, what Jesus is trying to challenge the man to do is to consider his understanding of what it really means to be good. He wants them to realize that the true measure of goodness is found in God. Now, in saying that there is only one who is good, that is God, he's not denying anything about his own divine identity. He's just leading a breadcrumbs for it to eventually be realized that if Jesus measures up to this standard of perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, then he must be God. Because no man, no mere man, is perfectly good. But in this immediate context, Jesus' primary point isn't to disclose to this man something about who he is in terms of his perfect holiness, but to get this man, again, thinking about what he's really asking about when he's saying what true goodness is. So Jesus does give a prescription. He says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And this has precedent In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 18.5, the people are instructed by God, keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So Jesus isn't saying anything new to this man. If this man is studying the scripture, he already knows that's what he's supposed to do. But when we go to verse 18, he kind of asks a funny question. He asked, which ones? Now, you can imagine almost Jesus thinking, like, did you not hear what I just said? (laughs) Keep the commandments. And his response is, which ones? It'd be like, you know, kids and mothers. You leave a list of rules. You say, I'm going out to the store. You need to follow these rules. And the kids are like, which ones? "No, No, there's no picking or choosing here. You keep... The rules. You work for a a store or a company, they said, here are our company policies. We expect you to abide by them. And you're like, which ones? No, that's not how you're supposed to keep all of them. Now, Jesus does kind of indulge the man here. You know, he could have kind of whacked him across the wrist and said, what are you thinking? But he basically just repeats himself by reciting some of the basic commands given under the Ten Commandments. And he focuses on those that are in relation to other human beings because those are the ones that are most easily observable. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and then kind of capping it all off with the command given in Leviticus 19 and 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you follow that command, you'll fulfill all the other commands about not murdering your neighbor, because that's not what you do if you love them. Now the man responds in verse 20 by saying, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? So as Jesus is telling this man about all the commands that are to be kept, it's like this guy is kind of like tallying up, his score, is like, all right, I've done that, done this, done that. And yet, he still senses that he's lacking something. He's recognizing some insufficiency in himself. And this is what leads him to ask, what do I still lack? And if he hadn't recognized that, then we would have expected him to say, all these I have kept. Thanks, Jesus. I'm glad to know that I'm going into the kingdom. He doesn't do that. He knows something's still not right. Now Jesus, again, has already said, keep the commandments, which implies that you're supposed to do it perfectly. And if we go back in Matthew 5.48, we see that that, in fact, is the standard of God's kingdom. And Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when we recognize that that's the standard, it's bound to kind of lead us to a point of despair because we realize that none of us are perfect. But this is, again, Jesus is kind of trying to drop breadcrumbs that are going to be pointing to people realizing that he is the only way of salvation. And that in looking to him, what God's fundamental concern is is not so much counting up good deeds, but in fact, being good. There's a difference there between just doing good deeds and actually being good. If we think of it like this, if God, for some weird reason, told you, I want you to find a water spring. Now we know what he's asking for. He's asking us to find a source of water. Water bubbling up from the ground just keeps coming and coming and coming. But imagine that instead of going and finding a water spring, you came back with a package of spring water from BJ's and said, Jesus, and you say, God, you know, here. I got you your spring water. That's not what God is asking for, because that's just finite. That's just a collection of like, okay, there's some bottles of spring water. We can look at our lives and say, okay, I've done maybe a few good things. There's also a whole lot of other bad things. And in fact, our hearts are sin factories. We don't produce the spring water naturally. We're producing, we don't produce the righteousness naturally. We're producing sinfulness. And what God is desiring is hearts from which righteousness springs forth naturally. If we go to the Gospel of John in John 7:38, we see, in fact, that the end point of, Jesus, of, us, of us believing in Jesus is that we would have that life bubbling out from us. He says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, in those verses, it's, John says that he was referring to the Holy Spirit because that's, that's how all that works. It's not as though we come to Jesus and believe in Him and then we somehow pull ourselves up by the bootstrap and finally get our act together. It's no, that we come to Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and our hearts are changed. And we start bringing forth good fruit. The fruit that God desires. So God isn't desiring just a collection of good, of good deeds. He's desiring perfection, hearts that bring that which he desires. And so he makes explicit his expectations to the man by saying, if you want to be perfect, the guy's not getting the point, but he says, if you want to be perfect, because that is in fact the standard, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the man hasn't said anything about his possessions up to this point. But maybe there is some things about him that indicate that he is a wealthy man. Perhaps his attire. Perhaps Jesus has even crossed paths with this fellow before and is familiar with him. But beyond the superficialities, Jesus can see into this man's heart and he knows that his heart is captured by wealth. And that's the fundamental roadblock to him entering into God's kingdom. Because as Jesus has already said back in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So when Jesus is telling this man to go and sell all his possessions and give it to the poor, he's not giving that command as though in all its specifics, it's a universal command that all of us must comply with. As if, I want you to go walk out of here today, sell your house, sell your car, and give it all to the poor. But God might be calling you to do that. And I don't know. Don't don't ask. Don't ask me after service. Um, we'll have to have some longer conversations about that. But the real point here is that we have to be prepared to part with anything and everything, because if we can't, then that thing is our master instead of God. Whatever we cling to is our treasure. And so this should prompt some self-examination on our parts. And following after Christ, is there anything that I would say, okay, hold up, that's a bridge too far. Now, make no mistake, we shouldn't expect that parting with some of these most basic things that aren't even necessarily bad things, because it's okay to own things, <laughs> that can be difficult. But we can't let those things control us. And we should notice here that the selling and giving is really just the on-ramp to following Jesus. His sell, give, and then come and follow me. And it seems radical, but it actually applies to us all. That when we come and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, that's going to entail us leaving some things behind, giving up some things behind as we follow Jesus. And again, what Jesus is ultimately trying to bring this man to realize is what he says in John 14.6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this man's not going to come to the Father through his good works, certainly not going to come to it through his wealth, and so he's got to be willing to leave all that behind to find heavenly treasure in Jesus, because Jesus is the only way. As it turns out, this young man's not up for it. He walks away sad because, for all his talk, he's more interested in the treasure of earth than the treasure of heaven. He's more interested in finding his own way that suits him than seeking Christ as the way. So, it's in light of that response that Jesus tells his disciples in verses 23 through 30 that it's difficult. For those who are rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, when you're talking about a needle, and you're talking about a giant animal like a camel, it's not only difficult, it's impossible for an animal to pass through the eye of a needle. Jesus knows this. His disciples get this. And so, as things stand, it seems as though it's impossible for the rich to be saved. And the disciples are shocked. This is a, I mean, the disciples are often shocked by what Jesus says, but this chapter has been filled with a couple of responses of shock. First, what Jesus said about marriage, and now again, they're shocked. They ask, who then can be saved? Now, the reason why they're saying this is because they assume that those who are rich must be ri- righteous if they've experienced such blessing. So, if they can't be saved, who can? Now, there's an actual biblical reason for kind of some of this logic of theirs. If, when you go back to Deuteronomy 28. Verses 1-4, through four, God does promise material prosperity to his people as they respond in obedience to him. I want to say at the outset, though, that this was for then, ancient Israel, over 2,000 years ago. And that it's pretty clear that Jesus is introducing a new age. So we, we can't just adopt the logic that the disciples were operating under up to that time, that if we follow God, if we're faithful to him, then he'll necessarily fill us with all kinds of, bless us with all kinds of material goods. In that passage, it says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. It you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. So, if the equation in the minds of the disciples is that if you're rich, then you must be righteous, then they're figuring that if it's even impossible for them to get in, then there's no sh- shot for pretty much anybody. But then Jesus makes, introduces this very critical comment we must catch. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What he's saying here has not only implications for those who are rich, but for everybody. Because again, the disciples said, well, who who then can be saved? And what Jesus has said, basically, in his response is that, yeah, on your own, for anyone, it's impossible for you to be saved. Because again, our hearts are captured by sin. But with God, our salvation is possible. And it's made possible as the Father draws us to Himself. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws them. And I'll raise them up at the last day. So, We can picture the disciples all taking this in. And Peter specifically. And just thinking about how this man was seeking earthly treasure and how they followed Jesus to seek heavenly treasure. And so he says in verse 27, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, Jesus is the one who had brought up the topic of treasure. Peter's response here seems a little bit kind of weird. <laughs> um, kind of like a, a bad attitude about this, that he's just interested in what he's going to get out of following Jesus. But again, Jesus isn't going to kind of take him to task and trying to iron out some of these things. He, he takes the question at face value. He says, Truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for My sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus says that we we and His disciples, anyone who is following Him, has an inheritance waiting them at the renewal of all things. What is the renewal of all things? The renewal of all things is the day on which Jesus returns and introduces new heavens and a new earth. There's a new creation. We're going to be raised from the dead. God's going to make His dwelling place with man. And Jesus is going to be Jesus is already sitting on the throne now as he's ascended into heaven. But then he'll be revealed, his rule and reign at that time when he returns. And he also says that not only is he going to be sitting on a throne, but all 12 of the disciples. Now this seems maybe novel to us. I didn't know that the disciples were going to sit on thrones. But when we go back to the book of Daniel... We see that it's indicated that the people of God are going to be participating in the reign of God's kingdom. Go to Daniel seven verses thirteen through eighteen, and then we'll jump down to twenty-seven. It says, "In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man." And Jesus uses that term all the time, so he's referring back to this passage again and again. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this, so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And it's basically repeated in verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. So when God's kingdom comes, we're gonna have a share in his rule. And I I think the best way to imagine it is this, is we're not gonna be the king because there's only one king. But when we think about any king's court or you think about any term of any presidency, they have a whole administration. They have people that are delegated with authority and responsibilities in that rule and reign that's what's being promised here to the disciples. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 12, Paul tells Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And then you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus is talking to the church of Laodicea, Revelation 3.21, he says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. So there is a reward which awaits those who belong to Jesus, who, are, who follow him. But there is a cost, as Jesus has already indicated. He just asked this man to leave behind all his possessions to follow him. And Jesus recognizes that that's a call with a cost that's going to be pretty much applied to all of his disciples. They're going to leave behind houses and fields, so just kind of general markers of wealth. But notice also he talks about relationships, mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers. I don't know about you, but that can be some of the most difficult things to leave behind. It's one thing to part with some money, maybe some job opportunities, things like that. But sometimes, in order to be faithful to Jesus, we're called to prioritize our relationship with Him over the competing priorities of those around us. Hey, instead of going to church on Sunday and spending time with the body of Christ, let's just Go off and goof off. Now, if you decide, and that person's not a Christian, and you're, if you decide to just keep doing that again and again, that's going to affect your relationship with Christ. It's going to affect the health of the church. So if you choose not to do that, instead you choose to come to church, yeah, your relationship with that person might suffer because maybe you won't spend as much time with them. And that's just like a super basic example in terms of where some of our relationships will be affected. We think about people across the world who are followers of other religions. Think about those who are followers of Islam. If they leave their faith and come to follow Christ, they're pretty much cut off from all their family relationships. So this, what Jesus, the cost that Jesus is defining here is very real. Even if we don't see all the implications, and in some ways we can be thankful that we don't have to bear all those, some of those costs. But it means we should look to their example and be ready to bear the costs which may arise for following Christ. And part of our hope in bearing those costs is that Jesus promises that we're going to receive a hundred t- times as much and eternal life. So he calls us to give up the all-consuming pursuit of wealth. And yes, does that have a cost? Does our Maybe we don't live kind of a flashy life in this world? Yes. But we gain our souls. That's the option. What is it to gain the world at the cost of your own soul? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26. Now in Luke's record here, in 18, verses 29 through 30, he indicates that Jesus hinted that there's even some reward even now. There he says, Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So now we experience gain in following Jesus because we do gain some new relationships, imperishable relationships. We gain imperishable treasures of the righteousness that God is bringing forth in our lives, which often amounts to a whole lot more when it comes to quality of life than having just a bunch of stuff. It's like if you have bad character, if your heart's all a mess, you're going to be miserable in this life. So there's a real reward to coming to Jesus and Him getting you all fixed up on the inside. But the relationships matter too. Again, Jesus has said this even from his own account in Matthew 12, verses 49 through 50. Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, there is a distinction that should be made here, which is that these are rewards that come from following Jesus, but salvation itself, us being delivered from death, being delivered from our sin, is not the kind of reward that comes from us performing some kind of good deed or anything like that. That's always a gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's not as though You're saying, okay, I'm buying my salvation by giving all these things away. That's misunderstanding the situation completely. You could never buy your salvation. It's way too costly. It came at the cost of Christ's own life. But as we come to Christ, as we leave behind these things and trust in Him, the first thing we get is our salvation. But then we have the promise of all these other Greater rewards, rewards that this world cannot offer. Now, here in this last verse, in verse 30, it's up there. We do have a little bit of a check on, I think, on Peter's attitude here. He says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The disciples are apt to kind of get consumed with rank and status, and Jesus recognizes that there is going to be some rank in the kingdom of God, but they better not think it's going to run by their standards. Because in God's kingdom, it's the last who are going to be first. And many of those who are counted first are going to be last. So we've really kind of come round circle here. He's talked about how the kingdom belongs to those who are Little children, not highly regarded by the world, who are dependent on the Father, which is in contrast to those who are wealthy and who may be apt to just depend on their own resources. And what Jesus is basically saying here is that there's going to be a reward for those of us who, whose lives might not seem inc- very consequential in the eyes of the world. I anticipate that at the end of days, we can think of some famous Christians, and if they're seated at a table, there's going to be those who are seated ahead of them who we don't have a clue who they are. Like, who's that guy? Like, sitting a little bit closer to Jesus than Billy Graham or or something like that. But that's what the measurement is. It's not our measurement. It's God's measurement. But simply being before his presence is going to be a reward. So greatness in God's kingdom is not measured superficially. And yet, like the rich man, we can be so superficial we can be asking the wrong questions in search of the wrong answers. We get off track by misunderstanding who we are and who God is. We think more highly of ourselves than we should, as though we're just a couple marks away from God giving us that eternal life that we deserve. We view ourselves as great patrons who generously dispense certain goods of our lives to God and others. And on top of this cake of confusion, we smother a thick layer of egoism. The attitude that barks, me first, and expects everything to be just how we want it. Jesus has tossed a stick of dynamite into the party. Our high view of ourselves is blown to smithereens. God is the measure of good. God is the measure of perfection. And we don't come close to measuring up. As far as our record goes, we deserve death, not life. But the critical reality that we must see is that God is not asking for one more thing, some good deed. He's asking for me, He's asking for you. He says that we owe him our whole hearts, and yet we're holding ourselves back, figuring out how we can get him off our case by tossing him some cheap meal from McDonald's. We ask how much he wants, and he says everything. We want a dollar amount, but he wants a blank check. On our own, all of us would walk away sad. None of us would hand him that blank check. But we can change when God grounds our heart. The impossible is made possible. And maybe you feel that happening right now. He can make it so that we'll leave everything for the life that Jesus offers to those who come to him. We are not perfect like Jesus. But His perfect life has become our salvation. His life covers our guilt. and His life brings new life to our stony hearts, transforming us daily and ultimately into people who will live with God forever. We must be like little children. People claiming nothing as their own. Who come to Jesus holding nothing back, contend to receive our blessing in Him as being a blessing which is far greater than all which is left behind. Let's pray. Dear Father, we confess that often our attitudes can be like that of this rich young ruler, where we think of ourselves more highly than we should, where we count the things that we've done, expecting as though in doing those things we've earned ourselves some reward. Father, help us to see and to live by the truth. That we have nothing to offer You but ourselves. Help us to see, Father, that You've called us to leave everything behind in order that we can start again, new. Start from scratch. Start with nothing, Father, because we've received everything in Jesus. Father, I ask that you keep your promises before us. Because it is tempting to start pursuing the promises of this world. The promise of having that house, having those locations, having this and that, Father. Remind us that we have something so much better which awaits us. And which we enjoy even now, Father. in the communion of this body and then the new life that you're producing in us. So that we're no longer slaves to this world. But that we're free. that we have freedom because our Master is Jesus Christ. And not money. And not anything else. I ask you to do this, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.